Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. The 2022 ABA Bird of the Year Burrowing Owl has so far been a great success. I'll be honest, we expected it would be. Who doesn't love an owl? So in an effort to bring you that extra owl content you are no doubt expecting in this year of the burrowing owl, we at the ABA are combing the internets in an attempt to find burrowing owl news. You might think that begins and ends with a Google alert that searches for the keywords burrowing owl, and you'd be mostly right. But that news can come from anywhere. This one came from our brand new Director of Development, thanks Steve Sebastian for fully embracing the ABA organizational aesthetic of being about birds all the time, even if your specific job is not really about birds. Anyway, it's an article from Christina Larson at the Associated Press about reintroducing burrowing owls in Southern California from places where their colonies are under threat to protected grasslands. And as it turns out, while the birds are groundbreakers in name, they are not groundbreakers in nature. They don't really like to stay in their new homes, despite the apparently pristine habitat, unless there is the impression that owls already live there. So how do you make it look like owls already live there? Well, biologists lean on a strategy that has been used successfully in seabird repopulation. They play owl sounds and they spread around owl poop. Well, fake owl poop. It's white paint in actuality, squirted on the ground and in burrows with a syringe. From the article, in a pilot program, scientists took pains to create the impression that owls already lived there so they'd stick around, and it worked. They like to be in a neighborhood to live near other owls, said Colleen Wasinski, a conservation biologist at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, which launched the experiment with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The scientists played recordings of owl calls before and after the new arrivals were released at four locations in Southern California. Wasinski used a syringe to squirt around fake owl poop in reality, white paint. Who says conservation biology isn't fun? Researchers put GPS trackers on the owls and monitored them. Most of the owls settled into their new homes. They established colonies. The owls that left, they did not do as well. Therefore, the fake poop works. I propose then that the species should instead be called manuring owl. Was this all an elaborate setup for a truly execrable pun? perhaps. But I prefer option number two. On the show this week, we talk birdability, the effort to make birding and nature accessible to all manner of folks with mobility challenges and disabilities. I am joined by birdability founder Virginia Rose and coordinator Freya McGregor for a really insightful conversation. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first week of February 2022. Out to California, where an ABA code for Oriental Turtle Dove in Palo Alto, Santa Clara County, is the most notable new bird seen this week in the ABA area. This represents the third record 
of this East Asian long-distance migrant in that state. The last one was in 2002, and one of only a few records away from Western Alaska, which in addition to California were recorded in British Columbia and Yukon Territory. Pigeons and doves are, of course, famous for being powerful flyers and good candidates for long-distance vagrancy. Those seen in the late fall through winter are almost always birds hatched the previous summer, so first after hatch year birds, uh, which are especially prone to what is called misoriented migration or mirror image migration. Effectively, they go southeast in the fall when they should go southwest, like a mirror image. And instead of ending up in eastern China or southern Japan, they end up traveling approximately the same distance, but on the other side of the Pacific, which puts them in California. It's a pattern that we see regularly in shorebirds, wagtails, a lot of other East Asian vagrants that end up on the Pacific coast of North America. Young birds are particularly susceptible to this sort of misorientation because while they feel the genetic urge to migrate, they don't have the experience that comes from doing it a few times correctly. Other than that, there's not a ton going on, so I'll leave it there for this week. If you want a more complete roundup, please check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org rba, or to get those rarities as soon as they happen, you can check out our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Uh, we have seen in recent years an increased awareness of the need to make birding welcoming, inclusive, accessible, and there are many, many avenues to making that a reality. BirdAbility is an organization that seeks to do so for people with a wide range of disabilities, from mobility challenges to chronic illness to neurodivergence. My guests are Virginia Rose, the president and founder of BirdAbility, and Freya McGregor, BirdAbility's coordinator. Hello. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much, Nate, for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Great. So can you talk a little bit about how BirdAbility came to be? What issues did you see in the birding and nature watching world that, that needed addressing in this way? Well, I can tell you about three and a half years ago, um, this is Virginia and I'm in, I use a wheelchair and have for 48 years as a result of a horseback riding injury. And um, after birding for 20 years and seeing precisely no other people in wheelchairs birding, mm -hmm. my thought was, where are all the disabled people and why are they not on the trails? And um, at that point, I decided they just must not know about it. And um, at that point, I decided I'm going to set out to make sure that people who have mobility challenges know about birding. And then Freya, um, coordinator extraordinaire, jumped in and said, hold on. Go ahead, Freya. Uh, well, so I'm an occupational therapist. So um, occupational therapy is a healthcare profession and, and it's all about helping people or enabling people to do the things that bring the meaning in their everyday life that they mm -hmm. can't do because of a disability, injury or illness. Um, my background is in blindness and low vision services. And so connecting with Virginia, um, it seemed like a disservice if we were only addressing all the barriers and things that people with mobility challenges have when, mm -hmm. to me, it's really clear that people who are blind or have low vision can be birders too. You just sure. bird by ear. Yeah. So many of us bird by ear already. It's right, a, exactly. It's easy Most transition. people yeah. do to some extent, yeah. even if they don't think they're terribly skilled at it. Right. But if we're going to do mobility challenges and birders who are blind or have low vision, like, why not just do the whole thing. Like mm -hmm. there are so many different people with different access needs who 
can get so much out of birding, who already do get so much out of birding, who can't mm. visit the places they want to be able to visit or who don't feel welcome and included in the birding community. Um, so, yeah, our, our mission now is, is any disability or other health concern that can be chronic illnesses, that can mm. be a temporary injury, that can be, you know, going through chemotherapy or, or, or people with um, acquired or um, congenital disabilities. So it's, it's a lot of people. Uh, it's a very diverse group of people with very different needs sometimes, um, mm-hmm. but um, we're all people and a lot of people love birds. So uh, it's, sure. it's exciting work. Um, it also becomes more and more clear to us that we're talking about people who are aging. So mm-hmm. it could be sure. in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years um, that each of us wants to be able to continue birding. So in yeah. that way, birdability is for every single person. Yeah. So I mean, you, in some ways, you're like laying the groundwork for like, addressing access for people who may not even know that they need it. Right. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. The um, disability, the, the U.S. Census Bureau says one in four Americans have a disability. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty big group of people. And sure. um as Virginia said, it's it's the only minority that you can join at any time. Um, and it's kind of pessimistic. But, I mean, it happened to me a couple of years ago. I woke up one morning and couldn't straighten my knee. And my plans of hiking up mountains all summer, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't hiked up a mountain <laughs> since. So, um, yeah, this is, this is a conversation that impacts everybody. Yeah. Do you think birding is a pastime that is sort of uniquely attractive to those who might have mobility or accessibility challenges? I do. Um, I especially think it's relevant for people who have access challenges because there are other barriers that they're confronting in their lives in so many ways. And their ability to be outside, either attended or unattended, I think is imperative for them to experience some empowerment that they may not be having otherwise. Yeah. And one of the great things about birding, too, is that you can do it anywhere at any time. So it feels like there's a very, you know, at least the solutions to these potential problems are very broad and, you know, wide ranging. There are a lot of ways that you can make birding attractive, accessible to a lot of different people. Yeah. I mean, you can bird from home. You don't have to see. You don't need binoculars, despite Mm -hmm. the strong emphasis a lot of people (laughs) place on binoculars. Not, Not everyone wants to use binoculars. Not everyone can um not everyone can manage the weight or or feel comfortable with them you know you don't need binoculars to enjoy birds and um you don't need to be on a trail you don't need to be walking you can do it stationary you can Mm -hmm. do it by yourself you can do it with a group you know it's it's such a broad activity there's so many ways to enjoy birds that um as far as i'm concerned anyone who enjoys wild birds is a birder whatever way um you do that in uh and and birding yeah absolutely has the potential to be so inclusive and so accessible to so many people. There's yeah. just a bunch of work we've got to do to make sure that that is true. For sure. Yeah, I really like the idea that birding is anyone who likes birds is a birder. Anyone who can identify, a, you know, a handful of birds, even the birds that are coming to their feet or even the birds that they see when they are um, going down the street, whatever. Like, if you can identify birds, if you know birds, if you love birds, then you're you're a birder. It's, it's not, there's no set standard for 
uh, beyond that, like it just it just is. <laughs> I, I would actually push back against that too oh, a little okay. bit. All right, um, go for it. Uh, this is I'm on a bit of a. This is one of my kind of personal passions about redefining birding and who sure. is a birder and birding versus bird watching. Um, I can talk about that for hours, but <laughs> yeah. um, I would push back that you don't even need to be able to identify birds to enjoy oh, them. Fair enough. Um, they, they're still cool whether you know what everyone else calls <laughs> them true. or whether you make up your own names. Um, you know, yeah. there's a whole other conversation there about bird names, but uh, people who don't, maybe maybe they have dementia and, and can't remember bird mm. names or, you know, all kinds of things. It doesn't take away from their enjoyment necessarily. So I, I don't think you even need to know the names of birds to be a bird and necessarily. I think there's a very strong emphasis in our society to name things and that knowing the name of things makes you somehow more competent, which mm-hmm. is true to some extent. And it's important if you want to communicate with others that you have a common, sure. you know, language. But it's just it's just another broad way to think about it. I don't think you necessarily need to know the names of birds to enjoy them. That's a fair point. There are times when I am out birding and I consider myself a fairly skilled birder when I don't know the names of the birds that I'm hearing. So yeah, it's not uncommon, and, not an uncommon thing. And, and I would say, interestingly, that um, the emphasis, even for people who are really hardcore birders, the emphasis now is in something called mindful birding or Mm -hmm. slow birding. I mean, it's almost like those hardcore birders are stopping and realizing that they're missing something vital about birding that doesn't have anything to do with identifying the bird. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as we've tried to say, you know, at the ABA, there are, you know, a million ways to bird. And it's just a matter of finding that way that is, is truly meaningful to you no matter how it is. Um, what, what are the issues that you see regularly that are perhaps the most pressing for the people that you're working with and working for? Um, I think I would say first, parking just continues to be an issue um, at various birding sites. And um, there may be accessible um, parking places, but they may not have van accessible mm. parking spaces. And um, so I drive a van now after um, 48 years of asking my joints to do things they were not meant <laughs> to do. But um, I'm now understanding the importance of having accessible van spaces. Um, in addition to that, um, I think accessible restrooms um, have got to be part of the equation. Of course, we're talking about surfaces. If the surface is going to be too difficult for a wheelchair to manage, then that person isn't going to be able to go birding. We're also talking about having benches available. Approximately every eighth of a mile is um, a, a good marker. And this is for all kinds of people who need to stop and take a rest before they continue on. And um, the one that is a particular pet peeve for me are the the railings that are positioned just perfectly to obstruct my view as a seated (laughs) person. So we're working on getting those railings adjusted such that not just seated people, but little people are Mm -hmm. able to actually see what's happening on the other side of that bridge. Freya, did you want to add some things? Yeah, two more things as well as the Virginia was talking about the physical accessibility of birding mm-hmm. locations. Um, there's two other big things that uh, a lot of folks with access needs um, 
I think would appreciate being addressed in a broad way. One is information. Um, knowing about the trail information ahead of time, uh, some people are quite happy to just go and see what it's about and have a go. Um, but having really detailed information, a lot of websites will say, oh, we have an accessible trail and you get there and it's there not- is no van accessible parking or yeah. it's all gravel, um, which is often not an accessible trail surface. Or, you know, there's a whole lot of other factors that go into a truly accessible location. And so having really detailed information available ahead of time, the Bettability Map, um, that's a partnership we have with National Audubon. Anyone can contribute site reviews and mm-hmm. it's it's a checklist. Just, just re- Anyone can just report what is present at that location so someone can find out ahead of time. It also, um, bird outings, you know, um, bird clubs, Audubon chapters, nature centres, you know, oh, we've got this thing going, like come along, we're going birding together. Um it's easy. What's easy? Like, you know, the same thing. Right. We, we need a yeah. lot more information. Like, are people with access challenges invited? Like, actually state that, you know, mm-hmm. are beginners welcome? Are there loaner binoculars available in case someone can't afford binoculars or they're just getting into it or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need more detail on outing yeah. event description. So, information is another challenge that we need to do better, I think, as a, as a birding community. Um, the other big thing is the attitudes of the birding community. So no matter how well we explain about our events and no matter how accessible the locations are, if the people using those locations aren't being welcoming and inclusive of mm-hmm. beginners, of um, birders with different disabilities, um, we're not really going to be encouraging or empowering um, everybody to to join in and go birding. So there's a whole lot about being a welcoming and inclusive birder and most of it's just kind of straightforward, like yeah. being kind and, and, and focusing on that. It's Some of it is basic disability etiquette stuff, yeah. Um, yeah. like don't just go ahead and push a wheelchair user unless they've said that they would <laughs> like you to, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But, but um, yeah, there's a lot in there too and, and we've got to um, keep working on on that welcoming and inclusive um, stuff. Yeah, I imagine that's a big um, a big effort for birdability because a lot of it feels like like you don't know what you don't know to some extent, right? You don't necessarily know what is required, and like telling people like this and this and this and this and this is what we need, um, and it's relatively easy to to solve those problems. Yeah, you know, a lot of people just don't don't know. Right, we're in the process of. Um, writing tips and tricks down for people who need some help in figuring Mm -hmm. out either how to attend one as a disabled person Mm -hmm. or how to help present an event uh, that's going to be accessible and inclusive. And I know on my, one of my very first birdability events, I was leading and there were four complete strangers who were in wheelchairs whom I gathered up over the few months prior and I was leading along and all of a sudden I turned around and the four of them had circled up and were having very earnest, jovial conversations about their wheelchairs, about their backpacks, about their clothing, about all kinds of other things. I'm like, you guys, the birds. (laughs) And they're like, what? What? And I realized, oh, it's not just about the birds. (laughs) Yeah. It's about the community. Yeah. Yeah. I think, too, um, with the welcoming inclusive birder stuff, a lot of people get really nervous about not knowing what they don't know. Like you said, um, you know, oh, but I I don't know the exact right way to interact with someone who's totally blind or, Mm -hmm. you know, and they think because they don't know every single thing about every single disability that they couldn't lead accessible outings. And I'd 
that's that's not true. That's not true. Please don't let that be a barrier um, to to doing this work. That the easiest way to um, know what someone needs is just to ask them. Mm-hmm. Hey, what what do you need from me to help you feel um, welcome? What do you need from me to help you participate in this? Is there anything I can do um, to make that easier for you? Let them tell you what they need. They're the experts on what they need. Right, right. Um, even if yeah. you had, you know, textbook knowledge of every single disability, it doesn't mean that that applies to that person right in front of you right then. So that's that's the easiest way to be aware and as um, helpful as you can to someone is just ask them. They, they yeah. know they have access needs. Of course they know that. You, it's <laughs> right. not, you're not pointing something out that they didn't right. realise about themselves. So yeah. you're allowed to just do that and um, let them tell you how they want to be guided or if they want to push up that hill or whatever. And if they don't, mm-hmm. then they don't. That's fine too. Yeah. Is it more important to retrofit existing birding locations, birding hotspots, or to establish new birding hotspots that might be um, more accessible, you know, from the ground up? Or is it sort of a six of one, half dozen of the other sort of situation? Um, The way I began, Nate, is to identify all of the accessible birding sites in the country first. Mm-hmm. Let's have that be our first job to recognize all of the ones that already work. Mm-hmm. And then once we've identified yeah. those and gathered some information about why they work and yeah. and ways that they can be improved, then we can take that knowledge to the next step. And that is to retro. Um, I just want to be careful that we don't like come in with a bulldozer and a subpoena. That's sure. not that's not my idea of how to make change. Um, And my um, experience has been that the community and the businesses within the community, as well as the other volunteer organizations in any community, are so very willing to Mm -hmm. help do that retro work. And so if we can get the community involved in making the changes, that's the best bet. There's also, we're not, we're definitely not trying to... um make every single birding location a thousand percent accessible that would be ridiculous mm-hmm. that wouldn't be achievable that would be that would just be not helpful like mm-hmm. you know giant mountains like that would be insane yeah. trying to put a perfectly <laughs> graded paved path up you know some huge rocky mountain like that's that's not we're not trying to do that but the locations that are reasonably accessible and and you know there's so many bits that go into whether something's accessible because so many people have so many different needs right um i have different needs with my dodgy knee than virginia does as a manual wheelchair user some of them overlap but she Mm -hmm. doesn't need a bench and i would really love a bench (laughs) so you know everyone has different different needs and the places that are already reasonably accessible often there's a few more things you could do to make them Mm -hmm. just a little bit better like add a couple benches or improve the railings or make sure your interpretive signs are large print and have good mm-hmm. contrast between the text and the background. Maybe add a tactile component if you can. You know, mm-hmm. little things. You can, and you don't have to do it all at once. Like you can just do like one at a time. Um, so things, uh, of course, if something is designed from the beginning to be accessible, it will usually be cheaper yeah, <laughs> um, and, and, and often more effective you know, straight off the bat, but but there's plenty of places that are really great that we could just add a couple more things to, and then they'd be really, really great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone, any birder in the community would complain about having more sites to bird as well, and whether or not they're accessible, uh, that's just icing on the cake for a lot of for in a lot of cases. Like, I, I, if we're 
building a new park and making it attractive to birds, then why not make it, you know, accessible as well, uh, right from the start. And then we have a place for, for everybody that everybody can enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, with this conversation too, there's a lot of things with accessibility where you think you're designing something just for this one group of people, mm-hmm. but a whole bunch more people will benefit from that right. too. Sure. And, and like you're saying, um, accessible locations, it's not like someone who's completely non-disabled like can't it's, use that because yeah. it's accessible, you know, like right. everybody benefits from that. I don't are there, need, people are going to come. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I don't need, as a standing person, I don't need um, a wheelchair accessible cubicle in a bathroom. Mm-hmm. Or, or a better example, a, a wheelchair accessible portaloo or mm-hmm. portajon or whatever it's called in America. Sure. Um, I don't need that, but I'd rather use it because it's bigger. Yeah. It's like they always seem to be less hot and sticky and stinky inside. <laughs> mm-hmm. If it's available, I would rather use the accessible portaloo than the regular sized one. So, you know, like everybody benefits when something is designed to be accessible from the beginning. And you might benefit in ways you don't even realize. Yeah. Um, so yeah, starting it's always great to start with accessibility in mind if you're beginning. Yeah. Um, right. And as a wheelchair user, um I'm always finding the spaces that have been designed for wheelchairs to be inhabited by a, a perfectly walking people who just need a little more room. <laughs> I'm sure. Or a little more space. And you know, here we're talking about moms with kids. Yeah. Moms with strollers, we're talking about older people that need a little more room. You know, again, we're touching on the idea of everybody. So so what are things um, that people without mobility or accessibility challenges frequently miss besides some of the things that you've already added? I'm sure that there's any any number of things that that uh, that people don't recognize as as issues. Okay, some like second tier accessibility yeah, sure, features. Why not? Yeah. Um Okay, shade. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of people um, who have fatigue issues or have photosensitivity, maybe they have lupus or mm-hmm. mu- um, multiple sclerosis, or maybe they have albinism, which can often uh, really, like, really, really prone to sunburn. Shade on trails and shade on viewing platforms. And if it's a sort of an outdoor bird blind, shade can be a difference between someone being able to visit that place and have a great time or not. Um, mm-hmm. Most people don't think about that. Um, another one is noise. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of people uh, who are autistic or have some other kind of sensory sensitivity, um, if lots of, you know, great birding spots are next to airports or gun ranges or (laughs) big lakes that just have motorboats roaring up and down, and that can be just overwhelming, even if um, someone else just uh, tunes that out and can still hear the birds. For some people, that's just too much. Um, I know um, people with combat um, related PTSD, you know, gun ranges could be a bit hard to deal with or there's a lot of people who don't want to be anywhere near a gun range. Mm-hmm. Um, so so noise, man-made noise in a birding location can can create an access challenge um, for some folks and, and most people don't think about that because it doesn't impact them. Yeah, for sure. There's certainly different needs for different people with different challenges. Um, how do you find ways to incorporate as many as you can. Is there sort of a one size fits all situation or, or maybe, you know, what is the closest you can get to that? Um, I could speak to just a couple of things. One of which is thresholds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think walking people really have no understanding about how difficult thresholds can be. Thresholds mm-hmm. that are raised, uh, thresholds that are on a slope, 
thresholds going over a bridge, thresholds going into a bathroom, thresholds going into a bird blind. Um, any of those things um, add a level of difficulty. Um, Freya, do you have some other ideas? Can you repeat the question? It's a great question, but I, I'm thinking of like what um, what is a what is a one size fits all situation sort of oh. look like, or even if that is possible. That's actually a really interesting debate. Um, Karina Newsom, who is an incredible um, black birder and former guest on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, ago. she's she's amazing. Um, I've had the great pleasure of working with her through her work at George Audubon. We host mm-hmm. some um, virtual accessible field trips together. And um, I met her in Atlanta um, a few months ago and she took me to a Braille trail and she didn't know anything much about Braille or people who are blind or have low vision. And we had this really great conversation about this Braille trail. And I mentioned it was on gravel and it was mm-hmm. up a hill. And I said, oh, you know, this wouldn't be considered accessible for someone with a mobility challenge because of the gradient and the gravel. Gravel can be really hard to navigate mm-hmm. over with wheels or or any kind of like difficulty walking and we ha- ended up with this we had this huge conversation and I sort of wish I'd recorded it because um, we realized that the one-size-fits-all approach doesn't always serve each different population as well as mm. as a specific it's approach like to that population measure. because yeah because yeah. So she knew someone who'd taken birders um, who were blind or had low vision out on this trail and they commented specifically on how they really enjoyed the gravel because they could feel that different texture uh-huh. under their shoes and if, they, if they're if they normally out on, you know, cement or asphalt, um, that, dif- that feels different and if you're relying on those tactile, um, that tactile feedback in, in, in daily life... You know, they, they noticed the gravel and they enjoyed that feeling. So so this Braille tray, which was built for these folks, like served their needs in a different way than it mm-hmm. would have served someone with a mobility challenge, which it, it really wasn't ideal for that population. So um, the one-size-fits-all approach, I mean, ideally we would like trails that are wide and flat and concrete asphalt or boardwalk. They're well-maintained. The railing's mm-hmm. not too high. The interpretive signs have an audio and tactile component and good contrast and large print. The, the birdability map, um, if people are interested in more, we have so many um, resources on our website, which is birdability.org. There's a big page about access considerations and mm-hmm. all this information and why it's important. But it's a really interesting conversation. Same with accessible bird outings. Um Sensory-friendly um, bird outings or, or programming, again, a lot of people who are autistic or, or may have another sensory sensitivity, um, you can design programs that are more catered to being sensory-friendly mm-hmm. that someone who doesn't have these sensory sensitivities might not find particularly engaging, right. but you're, you're serving that population much better because you've designed it particularly for them instead of a one-size-fits-all approach. So it's a really interesting conversation. Definitely start with the one-size-fits-all if that seems better, but but often if you're working with a particular group of people, you can serve them better by being more attentive to what actually they need. No, you know, it sounds like what we need are more more birding locations, (laughs) you know, and just more places to bird and you can tailor them to whatever needs you need. Can we remove thresholds throughout the world, please? <laughs> That's yeah, a one-size-fits-all. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there it is. Yeah. So what is an example of a really good birding site that you've been to that is, you know, hits as many marks as possible? 
Um, recently, I was at West Cave Preserve, and they've worked really hard to create an ADA trail that was going to be uh, well-suited, particularly for people in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. They created a completely accessible birding blind, which means that the benches inside the blind are movable, which means okay. that the viewing windows are low enough for a seated person to be able to see directly beneath them. It means that the shelves that they usually put right in front of the viewing windows are not too high or not too low for a seated person to be able to pull up and see well. It also means that they're able to enter and exit the blind um, in a way that's not noisy or mm -hmm. awkward. Um, I would also, though, um, defer to Freya because, Freya, you're Mammoth Cave Park, right? Talk about that. Um, Mammoth Cave National Park is in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, West Cave Preserve, Virginia was talking about, is in Texas. I used to live in Kentucky um, an hour away from Mammoth Cave, and at the start of COVID, we went down there, like, on the, on the weekend. It was spring. It was It's a migration hotspot. It was mm -hmm. amazing. Birds, like, everywhere, falling out of the trees. Um but there's this trail at Mammoth Cave National Park called the Echo River Springs Trail, and it's it's my favorite favorite. It's so good. It, it they have accessible van accessible parking. They have an accessible portaloo. They have these amazing interpretive signs that have a tactile component and an audio component. Oh, so good. Mm -hmm. That's not reliant on the visitor center or that visitors have a smartphone because there's no reception anyway. So your smartphone's <laughs> useless. It, it, it's a solar panel thing. You just press mm -hmm. a button. It's just always available if you want the sign read to you for any reason. Um, there's benches everywhere. Um, th there's these little viewing like areas that uh, I the first time I visited, I thought, oh my gosh, that the, the beautiful new trails. Someone's come and like vandalized it because the safety barrier around the little kind of viewing um, area it, it looked broken. And I got closer and realized actually those two sections are made of plexiglass. So oh, that visual nice. obstruction that Virginia yeah. was talking about with railing height, there's so many different ways, by the way, you can design railings and mm -hmm. so many of them don't have such a thick wooden board at the yeah. right of the, They can have it thin, you can have cables, you can have horizontal or vertical. Anyway, they totally removed that obstruction, but they kept the safety barrier with this thick plexiglass and it meant that little kids in strollers, toddlers, mm -hmm. um, Virginia, if she was there, I was sitting down resting my knee on the bench. I could see everything that a standing person could see. It was so cool. Um, that trail, they have the other really awesome thing they have is at the trailhead they have a sign that states in no uncertain terms the length, the trail surface, the gradient, the tread width, which is important if you have, particularly if you have a mobility device and you've got to pass mm -hmm. someone without yeah. having to like fall over the edge of the trail. Right. Um, and the um, cross slope, which is like how much of an angle you're on as you're traveling down the trail. Mm -hmm. uh, they had that at the trailhead, but they also had that at the three different places where another trail intersected okay. with that trail. Every time you hit that trail, you had that information. Yeah. This is what we wanted. Every trail. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Whether you think it's accessible or not, it was so valuable. So this trail, uh, they've since continued it, so it's now a loop. But at that time, it, it sort of stopped after like half a mile and a dirt trail continued. And I didn't think that my knee could have 
managed terribly much more. But because of this fabulous sign that said, if you continue on this dirt trail, this is what you're going to encounter, we kept going down that trail because I knew what was coming. We kept going and we kept going and we saw so many birds that day. It was so good and it was all because there was this really clear information about the trail conditions. I could make an informed judgment trying to be protective of my knee and learning how my knee is managing mm-hmm. different different environments. So that trail is my benchmark um, of what an accessible, a perfectly, wonderfully excellent accessible trail can look like. And there's loads of photos of that on our um, <laughs> Access Considerations webpage because yeah. it's, it's just a fantastic example. All right. Where, where can people find out more information about uh, about birdability and what uh, what you know all all of this stuff? So our website is birdability.org and and mm-hmm. there's loads of information up there about all kinds of stuff and there's we've got more resources coming out shortly for birders with disabilities um, about different tri- t- t- tips and tricks that they might use um, to go birding. Um, because we're a nonprofit, donations are so so appreciated. So you can donate via check or online. Um, through our website um, or birdability.org slash donate. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube at Birdability. All the stuff. Thank you so much, Virginia Rose. Uh, Virginia is the president and founder of Birdability for Amy McGregor's Birdability's coordinator. Virginia was featured in a birding interview back in November of 2019. You can check that out at an old birding magazine. And also Freya has an upcoming article in the March 2022 issue of Birding Magazine. So if, if you're a member, you'll be getting that in your email or in your mailbox. Thank you so much to both of you. Please visit birdability.org. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us get information at aba.org slash join i have some special shout outs to make this week to becky kent of longview washington simone littledale of victoria british columbia rian fertel and the fertel family of new orleans louisiana jessica jones and scott perkins of eugene oregon and steve childs of harriman tennessee all of them recently joined the aba and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so thank you so much welcome to the aba Technical production this week is by Greg Addington, who was super impressed with the burrowing owl story and wanted to wanted to point out a similar effort with Atlantic puffins, or rather, Atlantic poofins. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who have seen these videos of people feeding birds from their hands, but refuse to do so after what they are calling the black crapped chickadee incident. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter as at ABA. I'm reminded of the times I've spent looking for white-tailed ptarmigan. And of course, it's always, you know, really cold and you have to you have to bundle up and the birds are super wary and they'll, they'll just like wander off if you make too much noise. So it's a real pain if you need to, I don't know, you know, relieve yourself. So I know some birders in those situations will actually, and this is, I'm not making this up, they will use adult diapers to avoid disrobing and missing the birds. Because as you know, with ptarmigans, the pee has to be silent. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.